Our scripture this morning comes from John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. And these are the words of Jesus. He says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote... How are you going to believe what I say? Now, most of us grew up saying prayers and reading prayers and reciting prayers or listening to others uh, praying, but few of us have ever really been challenged to become a prayer. There is a difference between a person who prays and a prayerful person. It is the difference between something we do and something we are. Someone who has a pro- profound awareness of God's presence in an ongoing way. Now, as we've been moving through 2015, we've been focusing on various spiritual disciplines, and and today we want to focus on the discipline of prayer. And prayer is something, obviously, we're familiar with, but do we realize what a prayer can be? As we sing these songs to God, they are songs that are not just about God, but rather songs to God, making them a prayer. As we pray this morning, I ask that you consider opening your hearts in an even more profound way to let everything that you do today be an act of prayer. So join me. Almighty God, on this Mother's Day, we thank you for the women who have given us life and love. We are thankful for their gifts of patience, strength, and gentleness, and for their wisdom in teaching us right from wrong. We thank you for those women who have been a shining example of faith and hope in our lives, whether our mothers by birth or other women who have been an important part of our lives. We ask for your blessings today for new mothers who are just learning the joys and exhaustion of parenthood, for mothers who are struggling to raise their children on their own, mothers or grandmothers who are raising children for someone else, mothers who have lost a child, mothers who, though they have been unable to have their own, have raised children and loved and nurtured them as their own. Lord, we ask that you bless all mothers and mold them in your image as strong Christian women. Let them be an example of faith love and light to their families. May we as their children honor and respect them and be faithful in sharing that same love with the next generation. We celebrate, Lord, with our high school seniors and we pray, Lord, that you would bless them. We also celebrate with those who have graduated or will soon graduate from college this spring. 
May they diligently seek your wisdom and guidance as they move forward in this next phase of their lives and continue with school or employment or the military. We also offer up prayers of joy and thanksgiving this morning for Paul and Leanne Rodriguez as they welcome their baby daughter, Emma Grace, into their family. We are grateful for her safe delivery and for the joy she will bring to her parents and family. We also pray today for those in our church family who are in need of your healing touch. For Larry Nets and Andrew Dvorsky, who have been hospitalized this week. May they feel your presence and your hands of healing upon them. We also lift up Pat Quinn and his family following the death of his father Charlie on Thursday and pray for your blessings of comfort and peace to surround them in their time of grief. We lift up all these prayers to you today, including those we have prayed silently in our hearts. Now hear our voices together as we pray our Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And Lord, we ask today that as Pastor Mike comes forward to share this message, that your Holy Spirit would continue to fill him, that his words would give testimony to your greatness, and that we would hear everything that your Spirit would speak to our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, pretty exciting day. I I revel in... In, in praying for students, for one, but also to see these students that are here, most of which have been part of the church since they were confirmed or before that uh, by me a handful of years ago when they were in eighth grade. And it's fun to hear that their career goals and dreams are as diverse as they are, from massage therapist to music teacher to uh, military personnel. And I know we have others coming uh, after, the, after the sermon. And so I'm excited and I'm grateful for you uh, all and, and love praying for you and look forward to your futures because I've enjoyed very much your nows. Uh, and so, so thanks for being privileged, uh, privileging us with that. I do want to say happy Mother's Day to all of you. We all aspire, uh, those of us that are, are, have been mothers or are mothers, aspire to being good mothers, uh, mothers that are uh, worthy of our, parent, our children's praise because, of course, we know as children we always want to make our mother approve of us. So we thank God for, for the opportunity of that. And I, I know that many of you are just doing fantastic work uh, in that. And so praise the Lord for that. Now, I think it's important, no matter where you're going, to have an understanding of what you believe. I, on Thursday, had about a five-hour sermon. I have to cram it into a lot less minutes than that today. I mean, I could go the five hours if you'd privileged me with that, (laughs) but I'm not. Uh, So here we go. It starts like this. A number of years ago, my family was on vacation, and we were getting ready to go on one of those whitewater river uh, river rafting things. And if you've ever been on one of these things, you know that they're rated Um, five you know, it's the highest level. That means you're going through the Grand Canyon. Hold on. You're going to hit stuff hard. You might fly out of the boat. That's a five. One, uh, lazy river at a pool in Las Vegas, okay? Uh, somewhere in there. That's your... So we were going on a trip down the Arkansas River that was a three. So it was going to be pretty bumpy. You're going to bounce into a few things. So you needed a little training. 
So we put on the wetsuits, we got the helmets on, and then this college student came up and he had a big, the big long paddle, which seemed to be like indicating that he was in charge, because it was a big long one, and he smacked it on the ground and he says to our little group of seven that are getting in the boat with this guy, he says, do you trust me? We're like, yeah! He says, do you have blind faith in me as your leader? We're like, yes! He says, that's stupid. You don't even know me. You don't even know my name. You don't even know if I know how to steer this boat yet. But then he went on to kind of show us that, yeah, he had a few skills and he could lead us. And so we followed him. But, but I bring that story to tell you this. Because I want, especially the 14 of you that, are, 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 that we're privileged enough to pray for that are graduating from high school, but, but all of us as well, to understand this about our Jesus. Jesus does not want, nor does he seek people who have simple blind faith. Blind faith will not take you far enough. Christ made these extraordinary claims that he was the divine son of God, and he did not expect anyone to believe in him or to believe that that was true without having some pretty good reasons for that. See, Christians, and that's you and me, we're supposed to consider the evidence. We're supposed to listen to the witnesses and testimony and become convinced, not just with blind faith, but we're to be convinced that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. Now, I, I confirm most of these guys that were in this group and gals, and so I know that I've taught them this, and I see some 7th and 8th graders in here too. How many of you know, not just them, but you, how many of you know what the Westland Quadrilateral is? All right, we got people. See, we got people raising their hands. They know what the Westland Quadrilateral is. Well, well, let me tell you what it is. First, unfortunately, it's not for equal things, which from the name seems just wrong off the bat, Right? Quadlateral means there's four things that are equal, but that's not what it is. The Wesleyan quadrilateral is something that was that, that's contributed attributed to John Wesley, although he didn't write it. Actually, you can come to summer Sunday school and find that out. Actually, Albert Outler in last century wrote this down and said these are the four things that United Methodists should use to determine whether something is true or not, something is faithful. So the Wesleyan quadrilateral has these four legs under it. Scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. Scripture is easy. The Bible is the primary resource of our faith. That's why it's not quad and it's not lateral. It's quad, but it's not lateral. Scripture is the primary source for forming our faith. It is the divine word of God. Tradition are those things that, that, that we look at and say, if something is to be believed, does this fit with the orthodox Christian traditions of the church? Experience are those things that happen in the course of a life. And, and it's not just what happens to us specifically and individually, but it's what happens corporately. And of course, reason is, 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 drives towards the fact that everything that's to believed must be defended rationally. It has to be defended with reason. We cannot, as Christians, divorce faith well, from reason. So reason, and that makes sense because we're talking to some educated people today. Reason is where we're going to camp out this morning. See, Jesus is a thinker. He is obviously the most intelligent human being that has ever lived. He was before the world. He will be after the world. He created everything in the world. Nothing we can discuss, nothing that we can uh, find, you know, that we can find that may surprise us will surprise him. And so he uses the power of logic 
logical insight, and he says that we should to make sure that when we come to believe in something, it has logic and reason behind it. See, Jesus understands this because he was part of the creation. We are created in the image of God, and our creator is the most reasonable and rational being that has and will ever exist. That's important. Because you may not read the Cedar Rapids Gazette, you may read stuff online, but if you want to know what the argument against Christianity is today, it's that we're not rational and that we're not reasonable. As a matter of fact, the group that the atheists are putting forward right now, if you read the Cedar Rapids Gazette yesterday, is they're putting forth a society of reason, which by its very definition means that we are not reasonable. But that's not what Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us that we are supposed to have a capacity for reason and rationality. In Isaiah 1.18, God says to Israel, Come, now let us reason together. See, the, God wanted the people of Israel to use their rationality. He wanted them to use their reasonable, reason skills to come to faith. Therefore, it's to reason what we now know as apologetics that Jesus appeals to the disciples of his day and to the Jewish leaders of his days. Now, when I say apologetics, understand this. When I say that Christians are supposed to be apologetic, it doesn't mean we're supposed to say, oh, I'm sorry for my faith. I hope it didn't offend you. That's not it. Christians are never supposed to be sorry for their faith. Their faith is what drives them. It's in our faith that we move and live and have our being. That's what Scripture tells us. Apologetics is something differently. Take a look at what it says on the screen. Apologetics is a rational defense of Christianity. This is kind of like a seminary lecture, and you're getting this for way cheaper prices. Maybe, I don't know. Christian apologists use reason and evidence to present a convincing case for Christianity. You're making a case like a lawyer. You're presenting your, your faith to someone to challenge unbelief, to expose errors, to defend the message of the gospel. Apologetics was an essential part of Jesus' ministry. He never backed down from apologetics. As a matter of fact, Jesus showed himself to be a brilliant apologist. A brilliant rational thinker who used the laws of, of logic to reveal truth, to demolish arguments, to point out error. Matter of fact, Jesus is pretty undefeated when you read the scriptures at, at rationalizing back using people's own arguments to make his case. Since our faith is a reasonable faith, and it's supposed to be reasonable, reason's part of the apologetics of Jesus. There's a guy named Leon Morris, and he was writing on, on John chapter 5, verse 31. He says this, Nowhere in the Gospels do we find our, our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship, as we find in the discourse, the, reads, the words that, that Keith read to us just a minute ago. So apologetics is this essential component of Jesus' testimony. It's essential to his ministry, and therefore, it should be essential to the ministry of any one of us that's looking to engage a broken and lost generation. Again, I don't know if you read the Cedar Harvest Gazette yesterday. I did. But this has been everywhere. Do you know that, that as people select what their affiliation is, the fastest-growing religious affiliation in the United States is not Mormonism, it's not Islam, it's not Methodism or Baptist, it's not Lutheran. The fastest growing religious affiliation in America is no affiliation at all. When you're given a survey, if you go on SurveyMonkey or if you go get surveyed in the mall or something, they say, what do you affiliate with religiously? 
The fastest growing volume of people is in the box that checks none. I have no religious affiliation. And we say, well, the mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Aren't we supposed to speak into that growing trend? And the answer is yes. And we can't just whine and say, oh, I wish it wasn't so. I wish the world wasn't going down the tubes and blah, 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 blah. No, we have a play here. And we need to make it. Because Christ teaches us not only that we are, but that we're to know how. The Bible commands us in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But but set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always prepared to give an answer. And in Greek, the word answer here is changed to apologia. Always be ready to make your case to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. See, we're commanded to make a well-reasoned answer for our faith in Jesus Christ. We're, We're to be able to make a convincing case for it. Now, I don't go to 412 every, very often. That's our ministry to high school and junior high students. It's over in the Carnegie building. But I see around it a lot. I mean, I hear the music because it's hard to not hear it flowing out of the building if you're anywhere downtown at that time. And we have such an issue now that just this week, Pastor Keith and I had to deal with one of the local business owners that, that's a little bit exasperated with us because we have too many students and people down here on Wednesday night that were starting to take some of their parking spots. I got to tell you, first of all, we'll solve the problem. Second, praise the Lord, you know, because there's a lot of churches in town that you can drive around and around and around their block on Wednesday night. You can't find a car, let alone too many that's annoying the neighbors. But I know that what they do at 412 is that Pastor Keith, and I knew what the outline of his sermon was last week because he's kind enough to send it to us each week, those that might be helping, and, and so we know. But he makes a case for Christ every single week. And the songs that, that Simon and the band sing and the, what the leaders do is try to draw these students to Christ so that they can make an answer for their faith when it's called upon, which is a great thing. And I say praise the Lord for that. But we also know that youth cannot be fully and completely controlled. Not throughout all their life. So when I was leaving my, seven, my Bible study a little bit after 7.30 that I teach over here to go over there where my office is, I met two junior high age girls outside of the Carnegie building making a case to each other. And one was saying, <clears throat> and she stood on this side of the doorway, said, listen, these are the best. They have cheese right in the batter. And they have lots of butter in there. And when they're baked, and when they write, when they're coming out of the oven, they, they wipe them with garlic butter. They are awesome. Best biscuits ever. The other one said, no, 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 no. The best biscuits ever are these ones that are formed up, and they have butter in the, in the batter, and they have lard in the batter. And when they put them in the oven, they, they, they put butter on the top of them. And when they take them out, they put better butter on the top of them. They're awesome. I mean, I'm watching these two young women make this convincing case as to whether Red Lobster biscuits are better than Popeye's Chicken's biscuits. And it seems to me that they've made a trip through the Internet, or maybe one of them went to Louisiana to Popeye's headquarters, I don't know, to find out what their recipes was. But they were making this huge case as to this biscuit's better than the other biscuit. And I ask you this, because they were passionate about these. They're passionate about their biscuits at 412. (laughs) They're making this case, and because I knew I was coming here today, and I was going to stop by and say some of these words, I wondered, is your case to make disciples as strong as your case to convince me what kind of biscuit's better? 
And are you equipped to make the case? Now, Christ sets the ultimate example for us to follow. And we're going to go fast through it. He made us a convincing case to uphold his claims. And throughout his ministry, he kept giving compelling reasons and evidence to uphold his claim that he was the divine son of God. And the apologetic methods, which you know now as a reasoned, rationalized prescription of faith, the apologetic methods of Jesus serve as a model for every believer, including you and I, who desire to engage in an unbelieving world a testimony for Christ. So Jesus' apologetics begins with the testimony of five witnesses. So here we go. Write them down if you have to. We're going to go fast. Jesus admits that his own, that his own testimony is admissible only if it's admit, confirmed by others. Otherwise, if it's just one witness, you have a he said, he said. And, and it's, so he introduces a series of witnesses for his own defense. The reason he does this is he's making a citation of Jewish law. In Deuteronomy 17, it says, On the testimony of two or three persons... A person, witnesses, a person can be put to death. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness, which means to say, the more witnesses you have, the better your case. We already knew that. Here's five witnesses Jesus gives to his case. First witness is John the Baptist. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist has been baptizing and Jesus comes towards him. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one of whom I meant. A man who comes after me surpasses me because he was before me. How does he come after and yet he's before? We talked about this in John chapter 1. He is after Jesus, after John, because he's six months younger. He's before John because he was born before the beginning of time and he was present in the creation. So I myself, says John, did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave his testimony. Now, get this. Jesus is using John the Baptist because the Jewish leaders were all going out to hear John the Baptist preach. Because they thought John the Baptist had a pretty good little message of forgiveness of sins and all that kind of stuff. So here's what John the Baptist says to them. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me, referring to God, to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then John the Baptist, right to the Jewish leader, says, I have seen and I testify that this is the chosen one of God. So John the Baptist testifies that Jesus' claims are true. Second witness that Jesus puts forward is his own teachings and works. In John chapter 5, it says what Keith read a few moments ago. I have a testimony that's weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I'm doing, which include, you know, the healing of the man that had been uh, paralyzed 38 years, the, the, the speaking in, in prayer and all that sort of thing, testify to the Father who had sent me. And throughout the Old Testament, God uses miracles to confirm his message and his messenger. Now, I don't need to tell you what a miracle is. A miracle is something that interrupts the natural laws of the universe. The natural laws are what happens all the time. A miracle is something that rarely happens, but when it interrupts that course, it's clearly something different. And Jesus uses miracles throughout his ministry to show that he's the messenger of God. It comes down to this. When when Jesus is in uh, Jerusalem, a man named Nicodemus, who's a teacher of the law, comes to him, And says, now this should be one of his opponents. But he comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher that has come from God. For no one could perform the works that you do 
if God were not for him and if God was not with him. Excuse me. You try to do that with a microphone on and not kill everybody. Sorry. I just sneezed. Thank you. What a great witness you people are. Pastor just stroked out trying to not to cough and sneeze loud in the microphone. We're just like, well, isn't that nice? I was on a roll, too. Let's go. So Christ's miracles explain and claim that what Christ is saying about himself is true. So his second witness is his own teaching miracles. His third witness is God the Father. Three intersections that are easy in the scriptures to point to. One, at Jesus' baptism, the Lord opens the the heavens and in Mark chapter 1 says, You are my son with whom I am well pleased. At the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is, is up there with Peter, James, and John, he changes, his appearance changes to, to a bright white, brighter than any color that anyone had ever seen. And again, a cloud comes over them, and a voice comes from the cloud and says, This is my son, who I love. Listen to him. You have three witnesses to that, and they're unafraid to tell everyone. And then, when Jesus is teaching in Jerusalem, and we'll, we'll talk about this later, Jesus is asking those that he's teaching um, in John, John chapter 12, Now he says, my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, take this from my hour? No, this is the very hour I came from, says Jesus. Father, glorify your name. Then, God does it. A voice comes from heaven. I've glorified it and I glorify it again. The crowd there was, I'm summarizing the Bible, was freaked out. Because they heard what sounded like thunders, like an angel's voice. And Jesus says, the voice you heard was not for me. It was for your benefit. The fourth witness that Jesus puts forward is the Old Testament Scriptures. The Old Testament Scriptures, of course, were done being written 400 years before Jesus came to earth. In the Old Testament Scriptures, Jesus was prophesied over and over again. And at the day of his resurrection, he was walking from here to there, from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And he came alongside three, two disciples, and he walked with them. And he was talking to them about all the events that that had happened. And when they got to Emmaus, Jesus said, well, I'm going to keep going. And you guys go on in home. And they said, no, no, you stay with us and come on in and have supper with us. And so he did. And at the supper, this is what happened. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken to you. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, the Old Testament completely points to the Messiah. There are 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, and Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled every single one of them. Here's a few of them. Take a look at the screens. The Messiah would be born of a woman, be born of a virgin, be born in Bethlehem, come from the line of Abraham, be a descendant of Isaac, be a descendant of Jacob, Come from the tribe of Judah. Be heir to King David's throne. Be called Emmanuel. Spend a season in Egypt. Inspire a paranoid king to massacre children near his birthplace. Have a messenger prepare the way for him. Be rejected by his own people. Be a prophet. Be preceded by Elijah. Be declared that he was the son of God. Be called a Nazarene. Speak in parables. Be sent to heal the brokenhearted. Be praised by little children. 
have his death money used to buy a potter's field, be falsely accused, be silent before his accusers, be hated without cause, be crucified with criminals, be spat upon and struck, be given vinegar to drink, have his hands and feet pierced, be mocked and ridiculed, die without his bones being broken, be forsaken by God, pray for his enemies, have his side pierced by soldiers, be buried with the rich, resurrected from the dead, ascend directly to heaven, be seated at the right hand of God, and be a sacrifice for sin. And so, of course, you hear that, and that's just 40 or so of them. And you say, couldn't someone other than Jesus have fulfilled all those things? I mean, wouldn't that have been easy? They were all written before he was here. Couldn't they have just fulfilled those? Well, here's the thing. A thousand years before Jesus was born, the prophecy about his crucifixion was written. And at that point in time, and not for hundreds of years later, would anyone even know what crucifixion was. It was not practiced at all a thousand years before Jesus' birth as a method of execution. So how would they write about something that had not been, been, been known? How would someone figure that out and say, well, I've got to get this going on? And many of the prophecies aren't on, uh, under human control. I mean, after all, how could you arrange for yourself to be born in Bethlehem after you're already born? How could you arrange for yourself to be born by a virgin? Now, I'll make this one little case and, and, and move on. But Peter Stoner, who's a mathematician, not a preacher, he's a mathematician at MIT, decided that he would try to see how, what the mathematical chances were that one person would fulfill all 300 prophecies. When he started doing it, he realized quickly that the number 300 was way too large for him. So he said, what's the mathematical possibility that one person could fulfill eight of the prophecies about Jesus of Nazareth? Just eight of them that were prophesied about the Messiah. And the probability is one in one quadrillion. That's a one with 17 zeros following it. Five commas. Astronomical is the number when you try to compute whether one person could fulfill all 300. It simply can't be done except by Jesus of Nazareth. And that's the witness the Old Testament Scripture gives to him. A fifth witness that Jesus gives is Moses. Now, Moses is their guy. Moses is the Jewish guy. And Moses says, one's going to come up from out of you to speak the words. When he comes, listen to him. But the Jewish leaders, by ignoring Jesus, were ignoring Moses. So if they weren't going to believe Moses, why would they believe Jesus? And that's the apologetic of Christ. He brings five witnesses. And I claim, and I make the claim here today, not just to you that are graduating high school, but to all of us, that five witnesses are good. But a sixth witness is needed for the brokenness of our generation and to speak into it. And that sixth witness that is needed to testify to Christ is simply you. It's you. See, the apologetics that were essential part of Jesus' nature are there for us too. And and so I'm going to take you through a, a little bit really quickly on how it is that we're to be a witness to Christ in our generation. First thing we need to do is simply see the need to testify. We need to see the need to testify. You don't have to go anywhere. Just look where you're at. You can look around and see the brokenhearted. You can see the depressed. You can see the sad. If you're singing that first song or the second song that we sang today, just look for those people. The people that have all those brokennesses in their lives. The hurt that's, that's in our world. You don't have to go anywhere, but you do have to be so inclined to speak into it. There's this old line in the 1968 book of worship of the Methodist Church which tells us as preachers and laypersons that we need to be so inclined to speak the gospel to our generation. 
Are we so inclined? You know, so often we don't say anything. You know, if you have a friend, you all have this friend. I don't know who it is, but I have this friend in my circle. And you'll get into some sort of discussion group. You'll be having an argument or something like that. And they'll say, well, I wasn't going to say anything. And then they talk for 10 minutes. You got that friend? And you're like, no, you came to say something. And that's how we as Christians ought to be. We ought to come ready, inclined to say something. This is our watch, the only chance. We can only be faithful in our generation, not another one. So be ready. Secondly, know your own testimony. Seems funny, right? You've got to know your own testimony. What is it that God's doing in your life? And we say, well, Pastor Mike, I don't know how to make my testimony. I said, it's simple. And I teach him this, this just last week. I was teaching some confirmation students. Here's part of my testimony. I tell them, look, just review your life. Start with a simple thing like what happened to you today? What happened from the time that you were laying down flat asleep until you got up? It's simple. This is what happened. This morning I'm sleeping. I'm sound asleep. I wake up. My eyes open up. It's 5 o'clock. I say, eyes, you don't need to be up yet. I go back to sleep. My eyes go back and close. I open again. It says 5.30. I said, eyes, knock it off. I went back to sleep. 5.54, when the time I get up every Sunday morning. My alarm on my watch, my alarm on my phone went up, and I said, it's time to get up. I stood up. There's my testimony. I tell students to do that, and they can do that very well. They don't have any problem telling what happened to them. But a faith testimony is exactly that. It's what happened to you. You're not born into it. Okay, so many people I've said, what's your faith testimony? They say, well, I was born in the United Methodist. My grandma was United Methodist. My great-grandfather, my great-grandfather was a Methodist preacher. I'm like, oh, that's how it works? So if your great-grandfather was a bank robber, I got to get between you and my bank when you start going over there? You know, protect my money? That's not how it works. You got to have your own faith testimony. You're not born into it. It's the work that God does within you. It's something that happens within you, and all you have to do is testify to that which happens. That's what witnesses do. They don't make up stories. They just tell what's happening. And so your testimony is simply knowing what God is making happen in you. It's why you do what you do. It's the background, the backstop to who you are. It's what makes your behavior reasonable to you. Thirdly, you have to be willing to speak your testimony. Once you know your testimony, you got to speak it. Our kingdom building results for you and I are probably directly related to what we've done. You know, in, in anything. If you're a teacher... You know how well students are learning? It's related to what you've taught. And so, same in engineering, all that sort of thing. In the, in, in the work of the kingdom, in the work of the church of Jesus Christ, our disciple-making results are, of course, directly related to our disciple-making work. So if we've testified to no one, it's likely that no one will come into Christ because of our testimony. If you don't bait your hook and throw it in the water, you're not going to catch any fish. It's, it's as simple as that. And, and I just want to tell you this, because you need to hear this. Methodists, you've got to come out of the closet. Your neighbors know where you're at right now. They saw your garage doors come up. They saw you dressed not to go out and change a fence line. They say, huh, they seem to do this every week. Maybe they're one of them they're Christians. Maybe they're going to the church. Or maybe they see your time, your treasure, your talent, and your conversations being about the church. You're already out of the closet as a Christian. And if you're not, get out and tell your story. And you've got to tell your Jesus story. We were talking to confirmation this week. One of my 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 
said, you know what? I told my Jesus story this week. I said, how'd it go? He says, I told them, and they listened to me. And then they turned around and walked away. I'm like, you know, that's how it goes sometimes. That's how it goes sometimes. But you don't stop telling the story. Because I'll tell you what, when you tell your story, I think we think, you know, because, hey, I just told my Jesus story. I think we think that people are going to fall down in front of us and say, please baptize me. Let the Holy Spirit run on me. And I'm like, dude, you're in seventh period math, okay? Let's just think this. You know, people go home and, and, and they pray and they, and they wonder whether what we're saying is what there is. And lastly, we've got to live our testimonies. You know, it's Mother's Day. And if you're a mother that's got kids and they live far away from you and they haven't talked to you in 10 years and they send you a card and say, you're the best mother ever, you're like, hey, there's no actions that equate that. You'd have been better off going to Walgreens and buying your own card because frankly, it'd have been better too, right? It'd have been a nicer card. You're like, come on. Actions have to match what you say. So you've got to live out your testimony. Live it every single way. This is the basis. This is the basis. This is what makes us and what we do truthful or not. There's your apologetic. There's your opportunity. And so you that are graduating this week uh, or in the next couple weeks, I, I praise you and tell you to go out and do that work because when you do that, you're coming alongside us who have been out for a long time. And this is the work that we're endeavoring to do. Let's take a minute. Let's pray. Oh God, our master, savior, redeemer, and friend, you give witness after witness over every generation that teaches your truths. We ask, God, that we might be fruitful and faithful witnesses to you In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, When we first came to this area in the late 90s, we were looking for a newer, um, more contemporary church. And when we visited here for the first time, let's just say it was less than exciting. However, there was a a level of warmth and and, um, um, welcome that we felt that inclined us to come back. We did, and here we are today. There's such a a feeling of family and love and care uh, at this church. But more importantly, with all the activities that go on around here and all the ministries that this church has, we have a wealth of opportunity to serve our Lord in this congregation and this community. We choose to give for two reasons. First of all, even though we're spiritually fed by this church, we understand there's a huge cost in running and operating a church of this size. We get so much out of these buildings, the staff, and the ministries of this church that we feel obligated to give back as strongly as we can to support those things. Second reason is pretty simple. Everything we have, everything we've been blessed with, we've got from the Lord. So we feel a responsibility to, to give back to Him. And by giving to this church, we know that it's helping to spread His word. My name is Kirk McNeil, and these are the reasons I give to Marion Methodist. Please join me in worshiping God in this manner. Will the ushers please come forward? first came to this area in the late 90s, we were looking for a newer, um, more contemporary church. And when we visited here for the first time, let's just say it was less than exciting. However, there was a a level of warmth and and, um, um, welcome that we felt that inclined us to come back. We did, and here we are today. There's such a a feeling of family and love and care uh, at this church. But more importantly, with all the activities that go on around here and all the ministries that this church has, we have a wealth of opportunity to serve our Lord in this congregation and this community.
We choose to give for two reasons. First of all, even though we're spiritually fed by this church, we understand there's a huge cost in running and operating a church of this size. We get so much out of these buildings, the staff, and the ministries of this church that we feel obligated to give back as strongly as we can to support those things. The second reason is pretty simple. Everything we have, everything we've been blessed with, we've got from the Lord. So we feel a responsibility to, to give back to Him. And by giving to this church, we know that it's helping to spread His Word. My name is Kirk McNeil, and these are the reasons I give to Marion Methodist. Please join me in worshiping God in this manner. Will the ushers please come forward?